The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Catherine Pompilio with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for June 4, 2022. This week, the Supreme Court blocked a Texas law that would prohibit social media sites from restricting certain posts on their platforms based on users' political views. The Texas law grants the state of Texas and individual Texans the authority to sue social media platforms if they censor the posts of their users based on political viewpoints or geographic location by banning their account or removing their posts. Tech companies such as Meta, Twitter, and Google argue that the law violates their First Amendment right to moderate what content is shared on their websites and platforms. For today's Archive episode, I picked an episode from October 2020. In the episode, Evelyn Dweck and Quinta Jurassic spoke with Casey Newton about platforms and content moderation. Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 29th, 2020. It's another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation. This week, Evelyn Dweck and I spoke to Casey Newton, veteran Silicon Valley editor for The Verge, who recently went independent to start a newsletter on Substack called Platformer. Few people have followed the stories of platforms and content moderation in recent years as closely and carefully as Casey. So we asked him about what's changed in the last four years, especially in the lead up to the election. We also spoke about the challenges of reporting on the tech industry and whether platforms' increased willingness to get their hands dirty in content moderation means we'll have to change the name of our podcast as their claims that they're not arbiters of truth begins to ring increasingly hollow. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 29th. Casey Newton on four years of platform chaos. So your newsletter, Platformer, is essentially the only newsletter that I would say is absolutely indispensable to my workflow. You always (laughs) provide a smart and unique take on the platform news of the day and you round up the most important links. I signed up immediately when you launched a few weeks ago, even though as a student, it means I won't eat for a week. But, you know, that's a, that's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. So why is your newsletter so indispensable? How do you think about what it is that you're offering that I can't get anywhere else? Well, first of all, you're you're very kind, and I should say that um, your tweets regularly provide fodder for my newsletter, and there have been many days where I have woken up wondering what I was going to write about, and then you say something smart, and I think, oh, I could definitely get a column out of that. So, And you so still think- don't comp me. I mean, come I on, know. man. <laughs> Capitalism is so brutal. You know, I, I think about it in 
a couple of ways. I started Platformer and its predecessor, The Interface, because the subjects that I was interested in didn't have a, a central repository where I could go to each day and figure out what had happened in that world. There were some good substitutes like TechMeme that had a lot of what I was interested in, but they didn't have everything. They didn't organize it the way that I would have. And so I really kind of wanted that at a glance look at basically what happened on my my beat today. And so I started putting it together in a newsletter. And what I found was there was a pretty healthy community of people who wanted that kind of at a glance look at the day in big social networks, platforms, democracy, and a bunch of sub themes. So, you know, misinformation and disinformation uh, is, is a big one. And so I just kind of started to, to build that out and, you know, have been fortunate to find um, a, a paying audience. Um, so it, it's been, a, you know, it's been the, the, the most fun I've, I've had in my career, I would say. You know, in launching Platformer, you're obviously moving on to a platform, um, yeah. specifically Substack, which is this newsletter service that has been very engaged recently in recruiting journalists to kind of go solo and start using their services. You've obviously thought and reported pretty deeply on the role of internet platforms right now and the difficulty of managing those platforms. So I'm kind of, I'm curious how you're thinking about launching a journalistic enterprise on a platform? Like, are, are you going to, you know, test and see if you can break Substack's terms of service? Like, how are you <laughs> thinking about it? Yeah, the entire thing is just a, basically a stress test of the TOS. And as soon as it breaks, then I'm leaving. No, you know, it, it's, it's a good and a fair question. And, you know, I could give a, a sort of long answer to it. I'll try to give the more concise one. Basically, I, I knew that I wanted to start a paid newsletter. It felt like my best options were either one, to do it on Substack or or two to roll my own on WordPress. And when I looked at the time frame that I had, which was I, I thought it was important that I start this before the election, increasingly speed became a priority. And on Substack, you can just basically upload a logo and snap your fingers and you've got yourself a publication. So because it was so easy, that made it really appealing. They also offered me a couple of things as a nervous first-time entrepreneur that made Substack more appealing, the biggest of which was this legal defender program. So if I ever you know, irritate a uh, litigious billionaire, Substack may have my back. They're not obligated to, but I think they would be, you know, heavily incentivized to, to defend their writers in a case like that. They also helped me figure out uh, healthcare and offered me a, a small subsidy for at least a year. And so that just sort of made it feel like, you know what, I have no idea if this is going to work or not. All of these things make me slightly more comfortable in making the leap. So I'm going to make the leap. So, But, you know, as you point out, platforms have dynamics. They often unfold in exactly one way, which is that the platform exerts more control and authority over time and the creators get irritated and flee. And so I totally acknowledge that that is a real dynamic. I would love it if Substack could escape that. I think they seem far more attuned to the needs of their creators than many platforms have, particularly at this stage of their development. But we'll just have to see. And either way, I am committed to writing about it on Platformer, even though, of course, I will have to acknowledge the many, many ways in which I am uh, conflicted in that case. So Platformer is a successor newsletter to The Interface, which you started at The Verge in, in 2017. And 
those four years have been, in many ways, some of the most eventful for platforms. It's sort of traced the so-called tech clash that was in part kicked off by the revelations of Russian interference in the 2016 election and is now in full swing with not one but two congressional hearings with tech CEOs in the next few weeks and, you know, however many Section 230 bills on, on the Hill at the moment. So I'm just curious, what would you say the biggest changes from when you started your first newsletter to now when you're starting your second? Gosh, so many changes. I, you know, I, I would just throw out a, a couple. I mean, one is when I started the interface, I felt like I was among the more vocal critics of the platforms. But as the years have gone on and more and more critics have uh, started to speak out on these issues, I increasingly feel like a centrist or like moderate, right? Because it's like so many people have just had it with platforms. They think that all of the CEOs should basically just go to jail and, and that the platform should all be shut down and we should start from scratch. I don't feel that way. And so now I sort of sometimes feel uncomfortable, like I'm carrying water for the platforms. But I, that's just sort of my personal um, <laughs> emotional journey of, of writing this newsletter. You know, I mean, I think, uh, you know, probably the most prominent change, and, and you mentioned it, is the government is starting to pay real attention to these issues. And of course, Republicans and Democrats have completely opposite views on what they think should happen. But at the same time, we now have an antitrust lawsuit underway against Google. And apparently we may have one underway against Facebook by November. So there was a time when I would regularly write in my columns, there is no meaningful antitrust enforcement in this country. And that is no longer true. And I think that that is like kind of a good symbolic indication of the, the shift in perception, but also the increase in education among members of Congress about how these companies work and what are some of the, the issues that they've created. So those are a couple of things I would point to. Let's talk about disinformation specifically within that space. So over, over the course of the same four years, we've sort of gone from Mark Zuckerberg saying that the idea that foreign influence on Facebook might have affected the 2016 election is pretty crazy to Facebook just constantly deluging, you know, my social media feed and newspapers and everything saying, you know, how very seriously they're taking the 2020 election and their role in it. Do you think that reflects a, a genuine change in how platforms generally and Facebook specifically view the threat or a change just in how they think society and, and therefore their customers are thinking about these issues? I think they do take it much more seriously. And the Hunter Biden New York Post story, which I imagine we'll get into, is really the best exemplar of that, right? You had these platforms under heavy criticism for years that they had not noticed Russian interference in the election soon enough. They had not alerted the public to it soon enough. And Americans basically demanded that these platforms take a more active interventionist role in rooting out these kinds of campaigns. And so then the Hunter Biden story lands in the post and the platforms sort of detected that this seemed like a, a hack and leak campaign. And so they acted on it and then all hell broke loose. Okay, yeah, so let's dig into that a bit more then. You know, what, what do you think platforms are getting right for the 2020 election and what are you still worried about? And if it's helpful to talk that through the lens of the New York Post example, then, then that would be great. 
Yeah, I mean, so some things that they're getting right. One, they are doing a great deal more to identify and label misinformation, particularly as it relates to voting methods, right? So they are, you know, identifying posts that are saying that, you know, mail-in ballots will lead to fraud, and they're sort of proactively saying, you know, no, that that is not true. So I think that that is a useful thing. Most of the platforms have undertaken get out the vote efforts, which I think have been pretty successful. Facebook says it's already registered a million and a half people. And that was several weeks ago. I'm sure the number is higher now. So I think that's good. And they've also started to game out the aftermath of the election, right? There was a story in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend about how Facebook is thinking about measures it might undertake to effectively slow down the spread of content on the network, assuming that there would be unrest in the United States after the election. So just generally speaking, I think there has been a lot more proactive thinking and gaming out scenarios for 2020 than there was in 2016. So, you know, that's good. I think where things are bad, you know, one, there is just the phenomenon that it seems like it is the most angry, hyper-partisan posts that continue to thrive on Facebook. It is in no way a, a balanced information ecosystem. I logged onto CrowdTangle today and Donald Trump had a 96% share of voice on the platform uh, compared to Joe Biden, who had a 3%. I'm not exactly sure how they measure share of voice but you know Trump has more than 10 times as many followers on his page as as Biden does and you just sort of look at what which uh, posts are getting the most engagement and it tends to be this real hyperpartisan stuff and then the other thing is even though we know that Facebook recommendations push people toward a lot of bad groups uh, they still basically sat idly by while QAnon exploded on the platform this year uh, various militia groups grew extremely rapidly on the platform this year year. And even though from the moment that Mark Zuckerberg said that Facebook was going to pivot to these private groups, people have been warning that some of those groups were going to have really bad intentions. This stuff has sort of happened anyway. So that's a place where they haven't been as proactive and where we've seen some really unfortunate consequences. Okay. So on the New York Post example, then I think it's a good example because I think it, it shows what you were saying, that they were being proactive. They kind of leapt on it very quickly and took some pretty unusual actions, certainly actions that we wouldn't have seen them take in 2016. But I think you and I might have a different take on whether that was a success story or not. So let me sort of lay out what I think about that and, and you can tell me where I'm wrong. Please. And it's that, you know, in, in some ways they took these sort of apparently exceptional actions without really justifying them on the face of their policies. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, Facebook said it's downranking this story on the basis of signals. It didn't explain what the signals were. It didn't explain how much it was downranking it. And then Twitter took the nuclear option of, of, of banning the links entirely. Uh, and for a number of hours, we didn't know on what basis. It, it later came out that it was a fairly clear application of its policy not to post personal information. But then when people got angry about that, they reversed the policy. And it sort of just seemed to me that the way that these platforms were sort of not sticking to their written policies really opened them up to the charges of bias that inevitably followed about, you know, the, the fact that they were biased against conservatives trying to suppress the story in the favor of Biden. And I just wonder whether, you know, it, in sort of thinking about it 
purely on the basis of the story entirely. You know, platforms are trying to step into the breach and, and in doing so, create a meta story and sort of Streisand effect the whole thing when it would just be better for them to really sort of tie themselves to, a, to the mast of, of what they said they were going to do in those situations. Yes. I mean, I think that's, that's like, that is a, a totally fine and, and acceptable worldview. And, and I don't even really disagree with anything that you're saying. I think that, yes, it would be better for platforms to have clearly stated policies and follow them in every case and be extremely transparent about all of it. Uh, I want to live in that world too. I have criticized platforms for not doing that exact thing. I, I want them to move in that direction. You know, on this particular case, though, I think a good question to ask is, if Facebook and Twitter did just continue enforcing their policies perfectly forever, would charges of bias go away? Would Republicans and Democrats be any less upset with them about the things that are allowed on the platform or not allowed on the platform? And the answer is no. Everyone has an interest in working the refs. Everyone has an interest in just lodging perpetual ongoing grievances against these platforms and saying that they're rigged against us no matter what the data shows. And the reason is because we hate referees in this country. We object to the power that others have. And so I think that we need to accept that platforms exercise editorial judgment. They do it in ways that are both visible and invisible. They have a right to do it under the current law. And there are going to be cases where they exercise editorial judgment in service of the broader information ecosystem that may not first appear on their face to be consistent with their policies, but are consistent with the general mission that we have given them. So my view is just, if you if you believe that they should actively intervene to prevent the spread of disinformation campaigns, they're going to have to react really quickly sometimes, and it's going to be messy. Now, if your position is, well, actually, I don't think they should intervene to stop disinformation campaigns at all, that's fine, and you should make that case, but just know that that is not the message that they have been receiving for the past three years. Yeah. So when you say the mission that we've given them, I'm curious what you mean by that, because it's actually something that that I've been thinking about a lot of sort of what we, what expectations the public puts on these platforms as a sort of alternative sphere of governance and how that makes them fall down sometimes on the job. So can you just talk a little bit more about like what what you mean by that? Is it a, an issue of public pressure to sort of step in and clean things up when something like the New York Post story bursts onto the scene? Absolutely. You know, it, it starts with the press coverage in the wake of the 2016 election, much of which closely examined the effects of disinformation campaigns. It extended into the political scientists who studied the effects of disinformation campaigns on the 2016 election, and, you know, some of which concluded that it had had an effect on the outcome. And then it goes to our current politicians, many of whom have excoriated Facebook for not doing more to, to stop the spread of disinformation campaigns. And so if you're Facebook and you're a public company and you're trying to navigate these regulatory waters, you've gotten this incredibly powerful signal that a key priority for you in the next election is to protect the integrity of those elections. And you know, I think it might just be 
you know, fun to have the thought experiment of let's say that, you know, the Hunter Biden story comes along, the platforms do nothing to stop its spread. It goes crazy on Twitter. The New York Times starts writing about it as just kind of a straightforward news story while, you know, of course, acknowledging there are some uh, concerns about the provenance of these documents. But, you know, you can sort of, there, it's not hard for me to imagine this becoming WikiLeaks 2020, right? And then imagine that Trump wins. And then what is the conversation going to be for the next four years? It's going to be well, the Hunter Biden story came along and the platforms did nothing to intervene. They learned nothing from 2016. And then they're in for another four years of being beaten up. So that's just an element of this story that I never see discussed. And I wonder if, if you two sort of have views on, on why that is, if I'm misreading it somehow. No, I mean, I think uh, I, I broadly agree with that, that at the moment, you know, there there were no good options. Uh, I think, you know, you've written about this as well. It's sort of trying to make, take the least worst option in, in, in so many cases. But I think perhaps you and I just maybe differ on how the metrics that we use to evaluate how the platforms have succeeded or not. And for me, I think, you know, I, I'm a process person and I like having clear rules as much as possible in advance and, and sticking to them because I sort of strongly feel if we're going to see this again and again over the coming weeks, the surest guide to platforms weathering the oncoming storm will be to, to be able to point to their policies as we go. And I sort of, I guess it's kind of this idea of they may have won the battle in that particular case, but it's kind of the war of re-establishing trust in the online information ecosystem and whether the whole thing's rigged or not uh, that I'm concerned about. But obviously, you know, a lot of that is based on speculation of, uh, you know, exactly how important would this story have been and what were the effects of it and et cetera, et cetera, which is, you know, no one can really know. So yeah, no, I, I, I would agree with that. Also, like every major information platform is now subject to constant criticism that it is rigged, whether we're talking about Facebook or Twitter or Fox News or the New York Times. Like if the platform is big enough, then the entire meta discussion around the platform is how unfair it is to whatever group that people you know think is disfavored. And so I just think part of the like growing up of these platforms is going to be to understand that they that they have no way to win and that they can only make decisions based on you know their their principles and their their values and and their mission um you know and the, just their desire for self-preservation so yeah i i i mean again i hear what you're saying i wish that there was a process that they followed and 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 we should continue to encourage them to to do that you know as, as these things keep happening but you know at the same time like for all of the cries of censorship and oh the horrible precedent of you know you couldn't dm this link using twitter dms you know all of this was so temporary right it it was all over like within 24 hours this was not like a lifetime ban on discussing hunter biden and, and the, the new york post so all it really did effectively was slow down the spread of the story but also draw attention to how shady the story was and i actually think that's like a really good use of a media platform right when something really suspicious comes along to encourage people to slow down and take a deep breath and to consider that whoever is sharing it you know may have have a, a, an ulterior motive, that's actually the way that journalists act when they're deciding wh whether to share things that are leaked to them. So I actually like, maybe that's why I feel like such a like strange, like kinship with Facebook and Twitter in this case is because they applied essentially journalistic values uh, to this story. 
So I know that Quinto wants to jump in on that, and, and I'll, I'll I'll hand it over to her quickly. But I just want to say, you know, the 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 thing that you're not saying that other less polite people have said to me is that I understand that my point of view is a very naive one about like trying to hold on to process as some sort of safety mechanism in in times of of stress and that perhaps you know judgment calls and, and values are ultimately unavoidable but i also just want to strongly second the other thing that you said about you know the, the meta narratives that get created about platform actions in the aftermath of any particular action. So, you know, we have all of this story about like what Twitter did and what Facebook did. Um, and, you know, it was, they were only blocked on Twitter for a certain amount of time. And then by contrast, we have this like big story about what Facebook did in downranking it. And we actually have no idea what Facebook did and it still got plenty <laughs> of shares and views and links. And we yeah. have no idea what signals it relied on in doing what it did. And yet we have this whole story about the, all these platform actions that we actually have no idea what they were. Yeah, it's it's a really important point, and you know the at least one of the the Facebook posts about the Biden situation was viewed millions of times on Facebook, right? So if you're you know worried about censorship, you, you really don't have all that much to be worried about here, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, so so when Evelyn says I wanted to jump in, <laughs> it's because I've been talking endlessly about this story over the last couple of weeks. I mean, it, it's interesting. Uh, so Ben Smith at the New York Times had a had a really interesting column on how the Wall Street Journal's, uh, the news side, as opposed to the editorial side, essentially was handed the Hunter Biden story on a silver platter and dug into it, basically found that there was nothing there and sort of wrote not the version of the story that the Trump campaign was was looking at. And Smith's point was that the sort of, you know, the big media gatekeepers and his view are returning and sort of putting up the walls and saying, we're going to gauge what is and isn't newsworthy. And Casey, I mean, it it, it strikes me that in a way, as you say, the platforms are acting like newspapers and the newspapers are also acting like newspapers or maybe like platforms. Yeah. <laughs> everyone everyone is sort of saying like, okay, hold on, let's, let's take a minute and see what's really going on here. And though we didn't know it at the time, it really does seem like what Facebook and Twitter were doing with or without a, a rule book, as Evelyn points out, is really comparable to what the journal was doing, which is saying let's sit on this and sort of tamp down the circulation until we can figure out what the hell was going on. And in that way, it strikes me that Facebook and, and Twitter are sort of responding to the same incentives that, in this case, the journal and really the traditional media more broadly are responding to, where they sort of don't, don't want to get caught with their pants down either. And so everyone is ending up acting a lot more responsibly, I would argue, than they did in 2016, though it's perhaps more notable to, to our eyes that Facebook and Twitter are doing so because for so long they've explicitly refused to acknowledge that they're taking that kind of editorial role. Yeah, I, I think all of that is right. And I think it's okay that we're really concerned uh, because these platforms are where a great deal of online political speech happens and where the boundaries get drawn are arguably more consequential than where the boundaries get drawn, even at a major national newspaper, right? Just because the, the audience that Facebook in particular serves is so much larger. So I, I think it's totally appropriate to, to bring kind of outsized skepticism and scrutiny to, to where they are drawing those lines. 
but you know, and I mean, this is why I can write four columns a week. Like the, the question of where to draw the lines is impossible. And so all you have is like people navigating bad trade-offs and outraging hundreds of millions of people around the world every day. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back, and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent 
potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Yeah, I've often joked that this whole thing is a full employment program for academics and journalists because it's yeah. <laughs> really hard and we are not solving it anytime soon, in my opinion. So uh, I think you and I, you know, we, we picked a good topic, Casey. I'm curious then that, like, given what you're saying about sort of viewing them more through an editorial lens and making these judgment calls, like, are we going to have to change our podcast name? Like, uh, is is the arbiters of truth, you know, we're not arbiters of truth ideal such that it ever was going to be out of vogue? Do you think it ever really was sort of an ideological statement or it was always sort of like a, a self-serving, cynical uh, invocation to protect the business model? And do you think there is sort of going to be a movement away from that to being more hands-on? Yeah, I mean, I think it was arguably untrue, even when I, I mean, I think was it it wasn't Mark Zuckerberg who first introduced that term into the lexicon. He's the first person I can remember. Yeah, I saying. think that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, J- Jack Dorsey has all, ha- adopted it afterwards, but it was it was always false because I think even when Zuckerberg first said it, you couldn't go on Facebook and say the United States election is on November tenth, and don't forget that Democrats vote a week later, or you know, some some sort of obvious fraud like that. Facebook had just decided that that was not true, and so it would remove it. And then COVID-19 came along, and there were all of these other obviously untrue things that they were going to prevent you from saying, right? If you wanted to say that injecting bleach into your veins would cure your COVID, they would remove that. And so every week, it seemed like there was some new category of things about which Facebook was happy to serve as arbiter of truth. And you can imagine that that list is much more likely to expand dramatically over time than it is to shrink dramatically over time. So, you know, I can't speak to the name of your podcast. Maybe it'll just become like a, a, a kitschy retro throwback to a previous era of platform governance. Um, but I do think for the platforms themselves, uh, that era <laughs> has passed us by. I love the idea of the podcast title as, as kitschy and retro or and any, <laughs> any podcast title as kitschy and retro. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we wanted to ask you a bit what it's like to report on these platforms. You've broken some really big pieces based on uh, scoops from company insiders, especially about the really horrifying conditions that human content moderators work in for Facebook. But in general, I think it, there's a sense that it's really just hard to get answers from these companies. Columbia Journalism Review did a big piece recently on how Facebook obfuscates and gaslights journalists, and it includes a story about how 
Facebook lied to you about a test flight of a drone in 2016 <laughs> yeah. that's saying it had gone smoothly when it crashed. So yeah. do you trust these companies' statements to you? Um, I think I trust them more than I used to. Like, we just kind of, sometimes you just go like round and around with people and you fight with them for a long time. And then they're finally like, okay, like, will level with you like that's like sort of how i feel like what has happened with me and facebook like there was this you know there was this era of my reporting career where i was writing you know much like fluffier access driven pieces and then the 2016 election happened and i realized i'd been missing enormous parts of the story and so i started to kind of reorient you know what i was doing you know and it's also true that there are good pr people and there are bad pr people uh and that's true of you know every major tech platform and i've i've worked with both kinds i would say that there are some folks there who work really hard to get me accurate information in fact even when i was writing those content moderation pieces uh which were extremely critical uh, of of how the company had operated in in that capacity the pr person there uh, a woman named carolyn glanville went to some pretty heroic lengths to get me inside the content moderation facilities to let me talk to some you know other moderators besides the ones that i was talking to and and did it all in a pretty short time frame so you know you just sort of never know I, I don't know. Like one of the things I like writing about Facebook is it, it is a company that is sensitive to public pressure. Like it cares what people are saying about it. Um, and that's actually not true of Apple. It's not true of Amazon, right? Like not in any real way. You know, Tesla uh, just f- famously disbanded its entire PR department. Like you can't even get a PR person on the phone to get you a no comment. So, you know, in comparison to that, I feel like I have it pretty easy working with Facebook, with Twitter, with Google, with Snap, like all of those platforms are pretty good about, you know, getting me the official like comment or no comment or maybe some, you know, background guidance here or background briefing there. So I feel good in that regard, Um, you know, but it's also true that I'm sure not everyone has that experience because they have limited bandwidth and capacity and they will make choices about whose call they're going to return based on which stories they think are going to have impact. That's, I don't know, that's kind of my rambling answer to that. No, I think it's useful and I want to pick up on it and ask you about something that I've come to think of as the YouTube problem. Right. So it's it's this, that we spend so much time debating Facebook and Twitter's policy updates, in large part because they make transparent announcements about policy updates. And like we just spent a whole amount of time talking about their response to the New York Post story because they were telling us what they were doing in, in that situation, whereas YouTube sort of just keeps its head down and tries to let the other platforms take the heat. And then, you know, a couple of days later, releases some statement saying, yeah, we're not taking any action. Um, and, you know, this is like a, a common theme. Like they only released a pandemic misinformation policy on May 20, um, which is, you know, quite late in the year. They they have far less transparent updates about foreign interference takedowns. Uh, It still doesn't have a claim about what it will do for false claims of election victory. So apart from just YouTube bashing, the point of this question is, do you feel like there's this sense in which it's hard to write a story about nothing, but that results in sort of uh, disproportionate scrutiny on the, the platforms that, you know, do things and tell us about them in uh, such that we, you know, we create bad transparency incentives, uh, I think, when we do that. What, what What's your reaction to that? 
I, th- I think it's a good point. And I, I really appreciate the continued attention that you bring to the fact that YouTube often does sit out these debates in an entirely self-serving way. Cause I, I think it's, it is super important. It's, I would say that's a, it's, it's an actual good use of Twitter <laughs> because it's like, it's, it's sometimes not enough for a column, but it's like a perfect idea to fit in a tweet. Right. So um, it's one of the rare cases where I would just encourage a person to keep tweeting about something, you know, at the same time, we have also seen really good good reporting on um, YouTube and the way that it has been used to radicalize people. There's been pretty great coverage of its algorithmic recommendations over the years. And YouTube actually has changed its policies a lot kind of in anticipation of what other platforms would do, but also kind of more often in reaction to what other platforms are doing. So they're definitely trying to keep their heads down more than some of the other platforms. I think the fact that they are owned by Google just sort of gives them enormous cover, right? Like YouTube isn't directly answerable to shareholders. You know, YouTube doesn't have to give a a quarterly uh, report on anything. And so, yeah, so it, it is a, it is a, it is a blind spot in our understanding and thank you for reminding me that I need to think more about how to correct for that and in, in the work I'm doing. I wasn't meaning to reprimand you just to be clear, but, um, but, and thank you for the advice to keep tweeting. Yeah. Possibly the only time someone has ever been told on this podcast to keep tweeting. Um, <laughs> so I wanted to zoom out a little bit to talk about uh, tech coverage in general. I think that there's possibly because of how much, as you say, Facebook really cares about what people think of it. There's an interesting dynamic that's taken hold over the last few years between journalists and platforms. Um, And actually, you did an interview recently with Sarah Jung about launching Platformer, where you made this point that once journalists figured out you could get infinite retweets by typing Facebook is bad into a box, it changed the tenor of the coverage. Uh, so I'd love to hear you expand more on that. Like, what what do you think about the state of tech reporting right now? Is it overly confrontational because of these incentives? <sighs> to some degree, yes. Particularly on Twitter, I think Twitter has had a huge warping effect on tech coverage. You know, when I talk about this, I always like to just start by reiterating that I think broadly tech coverage is really good, and I think it's way better today than it was four years ago. Um, I think that this industry has benefited hugely from the added scrutiny that it has gotten from tech reporters. My newsletter would not exist without the incredible work of those tech reporters. Um, And I know way more about the inner workings of tech companies today than I did four years ago or 10 years ago. And that's all thanks to their hard work. So uh, I think it's really important to to ground that discussion because a lot of the sort of what I consider anti-journalism discussion that happens on Twitter right now is being driven by venture capitalists. Um, who have a lot to lose uh, when journalism does its job. And I think there's a really dark, uh, almost fascist energy that is coming off of some of those uh, VC tweets. So that's just something that I keep a, a close eye on. All that said, though, people do feel really irritated with tech coverage sometimes. So if I'm trying to find like what in there that I think is worth actually digging out and reflecting on it's this idea that I still haven't written a column about that I need to like soon because I feel like I'm talking about it to someone every week now and the idea is what I call platform determinism and it's the idea that if something is on Facebook then Facebook caused it 
And even though I think most tech journalists would never say that they ascribe to such an oversimplified view, I actually think that that view informs a lot of the coverage of platforms, right? Like I read a story over the weekend about the Boogaloo Boys and the story highlighted many, many times in a relatively short piece, the fact that the Boogaloo Boys had communicated on Facebook using Facebook products. No commentary was offered on that because no commentary was needed. And the reason that no commentary was needed is because all of us have absorbed the lessons of platform determinism, which is that because this took place on Facebook, Facebook must answer for the Boogaloo Boys. And of course, there are areas where Facebook should answer for the Boogaloo Boys. I'm sure that algorithmic recommendations help some of those Boogaloo Boys to find each other. But is the fact that they messaged one another on Facebook Messenger hugely relevant to a story about, you know, two people committing a, a crime spree? I'm not sure that it is. So I think if you work in tech, you are seeing this unstated philosophy. You're seeing this determinism kind of shape everything in the coverage, but nobody has really done their homework and shown their work for how and why they think these platforms are operating, right? Are you really making the case that the Boogaloo Boys would not have happened if Facebook doesn't exist? Then you need to spell that out. And if you don't spell that out, it's going to undermine trust in journalism more broadly. So that's the strain that I think is really warping uh, warping and undermining trust. And I you know, have some ideas around how we can get that back, but I, I would stop there. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And I think it is important, as you say, to distinguish between the sort of the criticisms of tech coverage that are coming from a place of sort of wanting more nuance and the criticisms that are coming from a place of wanting just, you know, optimism and enthusiasm all the time. <laughs> and And I do think that goes to another point I wanted to ask you about, which is that it's there. Obviously, there are wildly varying degrees of knowledge about this area, even though, you know, most people use Facebook, everyone seems to have an opinion about it. I can't count how many conversations I've had recently with people who said, you know, I watched the social dilemma and like this Facebook thing, it seems really bad. And, you know, some of those people are going to be reading your tweets, there are going to be some people who sort of know a medium amount and say, okay, well, you know, it's really hard for Facebook to handle this kind of thing. And then there are going to be some people who say, well, it is really hard, but also, you know, like they're constantly screwing up, right? Like, how do we know if the Boogaloo Boys are connected to, to, to what extent Facebook contributed to that? So how do you think about writing and reporting for these different audiences? Is there a risk that if you write something sort of at a higher level that people who are operating with less information to begin with are might get the wrong impression and sort of come away with a, a sense that, you know, Facebook did cause the Boogaloo Boys, to use an example? <laughs> I think it, it depends on the format. Like if I'm writing a big feature story, I want that to be broadly accessible. So last month I wrote like five or 6,000 words about what it was like to work inside Facebook this summer, drawing from a lot of internal audio that I had acquired. And I tried not to assume a lot of knowledge there, right? I tried to, to spell out basically everything that had happened and, and write it in as accessible a way as I could. Um, when I'm writing my column, you know, particularly now for my uh, for my my paid column, which is going out to like a, a really small group of people compared to the audience that I was writing for every day on The Verge, I'm assuming a slightly higher level of knowledge. I was actually, you know, I was working on the links for the newsletter today and I went to mention uh, Gab, uh, which I imagine most of your listeners will know is this sort of free speech absolutist platform that is, you know, sort of de facto a, a, far, a far right uh, platform. And I thought, 
you know, if I were writing on The Verge, I would have to spell out what Gab is, but I'm just going to assume that everyone who pays for my newsletter like knows what Gab is, right? So I think that kind of thing will change it a little bit. But, you know, my, my favorite... Uh, writers about complicated issues always write in a relelatively straightforward and accessible way I, you know I'm thinking of Matt Levine who writes this newsletter uh, that's mostly about finance for Bloomberg and he's writing for an incredibly elite audience that that knows finance inside and out and he still approaches every ed- edition of his newsletter like a high school teacher you know and is just sort of very like chatty and conversational so that's an approach I, I try to take as well because I find that when I do that I'm able to get away from the, the minutiae, I, I, like we'll get into the minutiae, but I like to to start by framing it at a high level to talk about what is at stake. And I think if if you force yourself to say that in a really concise way, you you almost can't help but making the the subject matter more accessible. So going back to your interview with Sarah Jong for a minute, you made a point that I think is really interesting that platforms are too big for us to understand in a way. And that's something that I think about a lot, maybe in part because it's kind of comforting to tell myself that, you know, no one else understands this either and not worry about all the things that I don't understand. Um, But I'd love to have you expand more on what you mean by that, especially because, you know, to what extent is the issue that these platforms are too big in and of themselves, like in their internal operations? And to what extent is it just that they're hard to understand because they touch on so many different societal and cultural and political fissures in their operations? I mean, both of those things are absolutely true. Uh, th- this whole idea that platforms are too big got in my head a couple years ago when I read uh, Jeff Vandermeer's um, Annihilation series of books. And I read this. Oh my God, they're so good. <laughs> I just incredible. have to show for them. Yes. Everyone should read them. Everyone should read them. They're so good. And I read this review and I believe it was the LA Times review of books or the LA review of books. And it compared some of the phenomena described in Annihilation to this concept of the hyper object, uh, which was, I know, forgive me, it's some academic theorist had sort of coined this term to illustrate concepts that are too big to get your head all the way around. And climate change was apparently used by this academic to describe one of those phenomena. It just sort of has so many implications, ramifications. It's causing so much uh, day to day that like no in- individual human can understand it. And I was, as I was reading about this, I thought this is exactly how I feel about Facebook. You have a platform of 3 billion people conducting an enormous amount of speech there. The platform itself, you know, it's, it's a marketplace. It's a speech platform. It's a, it's gaming hardware. It's a, it's an enterprise software company. And into that morass, an individual reporter or academic or citizen tries to, to learn a little bit. And then, you know, because we're humans, we, we try to like make a judgment um, where we measure what we know of the good versus what we know of the bad and then have some kind of feeling about this company in general. And what I've observed is most people just learn like 10 or 12 bad things about Facebook and they say, well, the hell with this, right? Which I'm, you know, like I'm sympathetic to, but my job is not actually to be the final moral weighing mechanism for understanding whether Facebook is good or bad. My job is to understand Facebook as well as I can and to sort of bring back to you day to day the best and most important things that we have learned about this platform so that over time, all of us can do a better job of weighing this thing, but but also, you know, designing uh, policies or regulations about this thing. But I always want to foreground the 
challenge of doing it because, you know, human beings are, are mostly innumerate anyway. And when you get to the scale of billions, you know, our minds just turn into mush. So I feel very feeble uh, trying to investigate these platforms, but I also just find it useful to begin from a standpoint of, of humility when I do, because I generally learn more. But but absolutely, these platforms are are too big to understand. And, you know, if I feel this way, like, you know, imagine what the average person just trying to kind of get a gut read on how the platforms are, are doing must feel. Like, I, I think about that all the time. So sort of tying that in perhaps with the idea of platform determinism that you mentioned earlier, your very first platform and newsletter was headed, Trump is a problem platforms can't fix. And I sort of see that as building on a theme in your work about the difference between platform problems and internet problems. And maybe sort of now based on this sort of theme, we might add another bucket, something like society problems. Yeah. <laughs> Can you maybe sort of expand on that idea in, in your work a bit and what you see falling into those buckets and what you think the broader discourse about them misses? Yeah, I mean, I I'm trying to remember what the what the like uh, inciting incident was that got me to write my first column about it. But I one of the things I've been trying to do over time as part of an effort to just see these platforms for what they are and understand what makes them unique is to try to isolate what makes something like Facebook different from one of the web forums that I used to visit or you know just like a website that I used to visit. And so that sort of led me to this framing of, of platform problems versus internet problems. And I'm still working on it, by the way. Like this, this doesn't feel like a solved thing for me. But, you know, the internet broadly helps people to find each other. It helps good people find each other. It helps bad people find each other. It provides a really broad speech surface on which people can say almost anything to almost anyone. And there are a variety of problems that come from that. For example, you know, people will post uh, horrible images online that, you know, that they, they have no, no right to post. Um, and that is a problem of the internet existing. And then on the platform side, when you think about like what really makes this thing different, and it's like, well, they have sharing mechanisms, right? You can retweet, you can share a Facebook post, you can share a Tumblr post. That can enable um, an individual piece of, of speech to travel all the way around the world more or less instantly. That that feels pretty new. That's like that's a platform problem. The other big platform problem is that they have recommendation algorithms, right? So you'll be in a new mom's group in Brooklyn and Facebook's algorithm, not knowing any better, will say, hey, you know uh, what new moms tend to love is this group that says that vaccine will kill their babies. <laughs> and so next thing you know, you have a huge anti-vax movement in the country. Facebook has, by the way, since uh, stopped uh, recommending that, but they did do that for a long time and it was really bad. So like that is clearly a platform problem. So trying to separate those two things out, I think is sort of a necessary first step toward designing an effective like policy or regulatory intervention, if that's something you're interested in doing. So if you could have one big ask from various what forms tomorrow, like, you know, one, one thing that you could change about everything that you think about all day long, what would it be? I would just slow them down. Like this is increasingly, I just wonder, like, why can any tweet get a hundred thousand retweets in an hour? I, 
is there a benefit that comes from that? Maybe if there's a tornado coming to your house and the National Weather Service uh, shares that, like that's information that you want to have. But I'm like, I'm prepared to accept that there are some positive benefits that come from viral content distribution, but I see fewer and fewer benefits about really speedy content distribution, particularly in these decentralized environments where any actor can share any information instantly around the world. Like, you know, if you're CNN, yes, you can reach the entire world instantly, but there's some editorial infrastructure there. They have some good incentives not to, you know, share crazy, you know, alarmist hoaxes or whatever. So I would just look for more ways to slow the platforms down, make it harder and not, not, not even necessarily make it harder, but just make it slower for information to spread and give the truth time to uh, put its shoes on before the lie gets all the way around the world. Yeah, I love the idea of friction and it just seems like such a no-brainer. Although, on the other hand, it always seems that people are really, really in favor of friction until it applies to them. Like if you watch people's reaction at the moment to being forced to click an extra button to just oh retweet something, uh, it's insane. just unbelievable. Like how dare you silence me like this? <laughs> um, so anyway, I, I just do wonder whether it's uh, we, it's something we all love in theory, but then if the platforms actually got serious about it, we would we would mutiny. So we'll we'll see. So just to sort of finish up big picture as you sort of set out on this new adventure with your new newsletter what's the big thing that you are watching over the next year in this space hmm what is the biggest thing that i'm watching i mean i think i would have to say antitrust right now like that is that is so on my mind you know who who wins the election i think has huge implications for basically everything that I write about. We'll see if it has huge implications for antitrust. But, you know, a world in which Google has to re-architect search and Facebook is maybe prohibited possibly forever from buying another social network is maybe even required to spin off an Instagram or a WhatsApp. That is that is really a brave new world. And then of course if Instagram and WhatsApp are spun out, then they're gonna face all of the issues that we've just been talking about and how nimbly will they be able to address any of them. So that just feels really, really consequential to me. But, you know, I feel like there's also a list of 80 things that are super consequential to me. And that's why I have to write four times a week. All right. On that note, Casey, thank you so much for joining us. Your questions were great. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back for another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Zachary Frank, and our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use. And thanks for listening.